Let's pray together then. Father, help us to focus on you. We've brought in cares and troubles, things that are too big for us. Thank you for knowing them all, for caring about each one of us, everything that concerns us. And in my case, at least, I'm so often worried about the wrong things. You have better plans. You have higher goals for me than I know and that I'm willing to, to admit. Father, in this time of deep division in our country, help us to love you, to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, and to use the amazing privileges and freedoms that we've been granted in this country, not to do anything we please, but to do what we should, to love you, to honor everyone who deserves our honor and our allegiance, to be the best citizens, Lord, that the nation has, to be gracious and loving and forgiving and kind and compassionate, to return not evil for evil, but when we are mistreated, to respond with love. In that way, the world will know that truly we have a great Savior and we are your children. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you made it to the air show? Two people? Seriously? I don't believe it. Really? It was amazing, and you didn't even particularly have to go if you could just pick a, a vantage point. I didn't go because I had other things I had to do, and I knew if I didn't get there early, half of Southern California would be down close to the a action. But the Blue Angels did scream directly over my head yesterday, three-ish in the afternoon here in the church parking lot. It looked like I don't know, about six planes made into one airplane. They were so close together. I got the best feeling of all, which are legitimate, spontaneous, not expecting it chills, just watching these amazing aircraft scream overhead. You know what I'm talking about? Now, here's a question. People crave that sort of thing. That show was put on at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we spend money to see certain kinds of things and to go certain kinds of places. People came from all over to watch aircraft scream by the pier. People go to Hawaii. We go to Yosemite. We seek out professional athletes, and if we have money enough or a friend cool enough, we love to have good seats so we can be up close to the action. We love to see great musicians on a stage because it's just different being there and listening and listening to it uh, on a recording. What do those things have in common? What are we seeking when we, when we go look for those kinds of experience? What are we after? We want to be awed. We want to be amazed whether it's travel or a possession or an experience or meeting someone or being somewhere or witnessing something, we have an infinite capacity for wonder. We crave amazement. God made us that way. You were made with a literally endless capacity for worship. You want to be in the presence of things that are greater than you are, that make you feel small. That's why even Southern Californians, because I've seen almost all of the United States, I can tell you, this little section of the United States right here is one of the most amazing places to live 
anywhere in the 50 states. But even we go seeking other experiences within the United States. We go to Yosemite, for instance, and marvel at the mountains. And Fountain Valley is one of my all-time favorite towns. And the reason for that is the city motto. Are you familiar? What is the city motto of Fountain Valley? It's a nice place to live, and that is 100% accurate. They're not trying too hard. They're not putting some, you know, America's most beautiful city or the most amazing place you'll ever visit. It is simply a nice place to live. But nobody in Albuquerque is circling Fountain Valley on the map saying, you know, Marge, what I've always wanted to see is Fountain Valley, California. No, they want to see the Pacific Ocean. They want to drive PCH. They want to see the redwoods and see trees so big they could drive their truck through them. We have this infinite capacity for amazement. But as we follow Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, if you'll look with me in Luke chapter 7, and if you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be one near you. If you don't have a Bible at home, I'd love for you to take that Bible home with you. As a church, we've been walking through Luke chapter 7 with Jesus, and in Luke chapter 7, I read one of the most surprising things I can find in this historical account of the life of Jesus. I read that Jesus was amazed. Jesus had a conversation with a group of people that left him astonished. He was so amazed, in fact, that he turned to other people and told them about it. And that just kind of blows my mind because when I pick up this record of who God is called the Bible, and I see it in all of its historic splendor written across about 1,400 years in three different languages by about 40 different people, and still it tells one cohesive story about God, I discover that Jesus is God. There was a time in history when for love of you and me, he became a human being. The Word became flesh, John says. But the starting point in Scripture is something that is obvious to almost everybody in the world, that God exists, that as mind-stopping as that may be, there is a mind and a power with intelligence and personality and plans and purposes that simply spoke everything into existence, and that Jesus Himself is God. He was there in the beginning. He made all things, and the Bible goes on to say He sustains all things. That's why it's so surprising to read of His human life on earth and discover that there was a moment on one afternoon outside or perhaps very close to a little village called Capernaum that Jesus was amazed. Read it with me, Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus has been teaching, if you look and if you Look, in Luke chapter 6, he's been teaching and spelling out what it means to be one of his followers, and it says in 7 verse 1, after he had finished all his sayings and the hearings of all the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
And if you've been following along already, you've maybe hit some words that you're not familiar with. First of all, a town is mentioned. It says in Luke 7 verse 1 that Jesus comes into Capernaum. That's a little fishing village. It wasn't Jesus' hometown, but it was where he decided to establish his home base. In Jesus' day, it probably didn't have much more than 2,000 people in it. It's a real place. In fact, it's a place that you can visit. As we keep reading this story, you're going to read about a synagogue. But first, you encounter a man that is referred to as a centurion. That's a word drawn from the ancient world we don't use anymore. What a centurion is simply is a Roman soldier who's in charge of 100 men. He's an officer in the Roman army. And there's some strange things in this story that immediately catch your attention if you live in that culture and in that time. You'd be surprised because this centurion has a servant. That's a kinder word than what the relationship actually is. What he has is a slave. The most common employment in the ancient world was that of slavery, and it wasn't nearly as brutal as the slavery of America before the Civil War, but it still wasn't a desirable condition. And surprisingly, this Roman soldier has a slave. He's sick and he's at the point of death, but the man, this officer, cares about him. It says he was highly valued about by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, here's the second interesting thing. He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, that sounds pretty ordinary to me. Well, yes, but think about it from a first century perspective. A Roman soldier probably never envisioned being anywhere near a not particularly important fishing town all the way over in Israel. He's a long way from his native country. He is part of an occupying force. He is there to represent the authority and the power of Rome. He wears weapons every day that remind the people that the Roman army has destroyed and subdued that he is in charge, not they. So it's surprising that he has managed somehow to persuade elders of the Jews, in other words, civic leaders from this town, to ask Jesus to come heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. You following with me? This Roman officer has paid money to build a Jewish synagogue. It's really strange. Because soldiers in an occupying army, they may feel moments of compassion or mercy for the people that are around them, but they're not there to join hands. They're not there to adopt that culture. Somehow, probably because for the first time in a very long time, God's people are actually trying to live for Him. And hundreds of years earlier, with the temple destroyed, they had created a time, they had created a method for them to hear the Scriptures. And every town of any importance whatsoever, if just a few families could be gathered, a synagogue would be built, and every Sabbath, on every Saturday, God's book would be opened and read. 
And something is happening in the lives of this man that he is seeing this kind of faith and he's impressed by it and he's gone so far as to be apparently the chief donor for the building of a synagogue. And you can visit it today. In fact, you can see it right now. Let me show you the synagogue in Capernaum. There it is. If you go with us to Israel next year, and I hope a lot of you do, we still have a few spots available. We can walk right on those cobblestones. Now, what you're seeing is about four centuries later, but they've dug down to show you the first century foundation of this little synagogue. This is a place where Jesus actually walked. This is a place where Jesus actually taught. Not what is visible here, but certainly its foundations. This is what the man from this Roman army helped to build. He loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. Now, what do you think Jesus is going to do? Knowing Jesus as you do or thinking about Him, what you will, Jesus hears this request. What's His response going to be if you haven't read the rest of the story? He's going to go. Verse 5, verse 6 rather, Jesus went with them. When He was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. First it was Jewish leaders, now it's friends of his, and they say something different, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. This is very considerate by this Roman officer. He understands that a man in Jesus' position is going to be heavily criticized if he goes into the home of this Gentile man who is still considered a pagan. He says something very humble. Jesus, I don't deserve to meet you myself. You don't have to bother yourself coming into my house. I know what kind of criticism that is going to arouse. I did not presume to come to you myself, but here's the amazing thing. He says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. And look carefully at verse 8, and I want us to discuss this. I want to study the Bible with you for a moment. This Roman officer said, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Here's my question for you. What's the point of verse 8? Look carefully at it. Take a moment. I know you're accustomed to rapid-fire, drink-from-a-fire rate of speech from me, but that's okay. Why did the Roman centurion, through his friends, say verse 8? What's the point? As As people I have in my small groups can tell you, I'm perfectly comfortable with silence. Folks, sometimes it's good to be quiet in church. Look in the first part of the verse. It'll help you figure out what this man knew about Jesus. Exactly. This is a Roman officer. The Roman army, their tactics are studied to this day. A military historian from West Point says that one of the extraordinary things that made the Roman army so superior, overwhelming, and essentially invincible in its time was not only the technology that they developed, which was world-class at the time. 
See, the weapon without the man is nothing. What the Romans had mastered is a system of discipline where their officers went to war with them and stood behind them giving them commands, which were, by training, respect, honor, and a little bit of fear, were followed without hesitation by the men under that officer's command. The Roman centurion says, Jesus, I don't deserve to meet you. You don't have to trouble yourself and degrade yourself according to the culture and understanding of the people around you by coming to my house. Verse 7, say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority and I have soldiers under me. If I say to a soldier, go or come or do this, they do it instantly. And what the Roman centurion is saying as a soldier is, I understand a chain of command. I have people above me, and I obey them without question. I may not understand why they're telling me to do what I'm being commanded, but that doesn't matter. I'm a soldier under authority, and I do it. I have a hundred men under me, and I expect their immediate, unquestioning obedience. And what I've come to understand about you is that you have that same kind of authority even over disease and even over something that threatens life. You say the word, it's done. And the story wraps up very quickly after that. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. That's mind-blowing. Jesus, the Son of God who created all things and knows it all, Here's this simple confession of absolute trust from this unexpected source from a Roman soldier. Jesus hears this. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him. Now put yourself in the dust with us for just a second. Jesus has been teaching people. A great crowd of people are following him now to Capernaum to see what else he does and what else he says. What kind of people do you think these might be? Are these Romans? No, these are Jews. And he turns to them and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Garner paraphrase, are you hearing this? I haven't found any of you. No one in any village or any city that I've visited has understood and believed what this man does. And of course, verse 10 says, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What's the point of the story? Simply this, folks. Jesus is in charge of everything. He commands death, disease, anything in the universe that He made is completely under His power. And if you still have questions about God, let me tell you right now, I understand that when the supernatural is spoken of, that immediately brings up some resistance and some skepticism on your part. Everything in our culture is wired to tell us that matter, what you can see and hear and touch and feel, that's all there is. But the Bible begins from its very first verse to tell you that there is a God that made this beautiful, spectacular, awe-inspiring universe. That life is preciously and beautifully fine-tuned to sustain life because there is an intelligent person behind it with love and character and will and plans who made all this and placed you in His creation so that you could enjoy it and even enjoy exploring it. And that that God exists and He is real and eternal. And the point is this, if God exists, then miracles are no problem whatsoever. 
If God exists outside of his creation, he can at any time for his own purposes intervene into his creation, into the system he made, and suspend its laws or turn them to another purpose. The Roman centurion understood this about Jesus. You say the word and let my servant be healed because I understand authority and I know that you have power over the creation just as I do over one of the lowest soldiers under my rank. But the part that blows my mind about the story is this, folks. Jesus is in charge of everything, but we amaze him when we act like we believe it. That's the point. Only twice in Scripture can I find that Jesus was amazed. Jesus became a man. He became a human being. He wasn't pretending to be a human being. He became an actual human being to take your place, to live life perfectly and offer that perfect life up to God as your substitute. And because he is an actual human being, he has the same capacity for amazement evidently that you do. And twice in Scripture I find that Jesus was amazed. Once is right here, what I've just told you in Capernaum. The other is when he went to his hometown. And we're told that Jesus was not able to do many miracles in Nazareth. He only put his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And it says he marveled at their, can you guess what the problem was? He marveled at their unbelief. It's a personal relationship. It ebbs and flows from my side. Now I want to, that's the point of the story. I want to make a few very personal and practical applications and ask you this. What might Christians, what might people who actually believe Jesus what might we do if we really believe that Jesus is Lord? What difference would it make? Well, the centurion tells me, first of all, I think that if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, we would believe what we're told about Him. See, in this same synagogue in Capernaum, you can read earlier in the Gospels, Jesus was preaching one day in Capernaum, and he was interrupted by a screaming man, and the man was screaming because he was demon-possessed. And if you remember the story, Jesus looked at that man and essentially said, shut up and get out. And just like that, it was done. And the man fell to the floor once more, and he was free. Then Jesus walked out of that little synagogue and walked over to Peter's house, which you can also see in Israel. The ruins of what has been believed to be Peter's house for many, many centuries are within walking distance of the synagogue in Capernaum. I hope one day we can see it together. And he walked over there, and Peter's mother was sick with a fever, and Jesus immediately healed her. And because Jesus is intervening in the world he made, something miraculous happened. Not only was the fever instantly gone, but it says she got up and made them food. I don't know if you remember the last time you got over a fever, we usually don't pop right out of bed and get to doing, right? When my last fever I had, when it finally broke, I had two thoughts. One, I might live. Two, we really need to wash these sheets when this is over. <laughs> Absolutely no interest in getting up and doing. I milked it probably for three days and just said, you know, I just got over a fever. I'm going to need a little time. <laughs> not at Peter's house, not his mother-in-law. She gets up and cooks. And then it says, 
Same gospel. Jesus at night, and imagine this horror show, when it was dark, they brought everyone who was diseased and everyone who was demon-possessed, and He left that little house and walked among them, and everything He encountered, He healed, He corrected, He turned back to health. Amazing. And maybe the centurion had heard that much. And my point is, you know much more about Jesus. If you've read this book, you've been told, you and I have been told much more about Jesus than the centurion ever had. Because Jesus at this point is still walking on the earth. He has not gone willingly to a Roman cross, died for sin, and as He promised to do, took His life back to give you eternal life. So people who actually believe Jesus is Lord who not only embrace but walk out what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, would hear what they are told about Jesus, and they would believe it. Now, I don't mean to, in the slightest to be condescending, but where is it that we are told about Jesus? This is the only historic, authoritative, God-given record. You can go to Barnes and Noble and go into the spirituality section and read all kinds of speculations and hallucinations. But there's only one authoritative source. Luke is a careful historian that every spade of the archaeologist's shovel, every spade full of dirt that digs deeper into biblical history that Luke delivered us is shown to be true. Why? Because he interviewed the eyewitnesses, because he was close to those who saw Jesus for themselves. He wanted you to know exactly who Jesus is, and the question is not whether we have a record that is verifiable and trustworthy. The question is whether we will hear about it and believe it. That's why it's so vital that your following Jesus only begin on the weekend when we worship together, but continue throughout the week when you meet with God and say, God, open up your word to me. I'm tired this morning, and I'm not even sure that I really want to be here, but I know I need to meet with you. I have things to tell you. I need to hear from you open up your word again and let me see wonderful things in it so that I may know who you are and trust you. The second thing we would do, I'm convinced, is if we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, we would humbly ask for His help. See, the centurion didn't only tell people what he thought about Jesus. He took a courageous cultural step, and in the humblest way possible, gathered people he thought might be respectable, people to whom, with whom he had established a personal friendship and relationship, and he sent those civic elders, he sent the elders of the Jews to him to plead with Jesus, please, we know this is strange, it's a Roman officer. They're responsible for the oppression and even the death of many, but this is a different kind of man. He actually loves us. He built us the synagogue. We worship in Sabbath after Sabbath. Would you please do this for him? And Jesus goes. See, what we're talking about, folks, is the difference between prayer and prayerlessness. Hard to do this for a third time because it's, it's humbling, really, but if you'll bear with me a little bit of self-disclosure just tell you about me and what my discipleship to Jesus looks like way too often. All too often, I confuse being worried and working hard 
and making plans and getting the advice of other good people, people I think I can trust, people who are knowledgeable. I confuse all of those human activities with something that I should start with first, which is to humbly ask my God for His help. I think that the mental activity of worrying about it and thinking about it and trying to look at it from different angles and wondering about what this person might say or do or think or who else might be able to help or what kind of meeting I can pull together, all of that mental activity, all of that effort is too easily confused with prayer. And the centurion did none of that in this story. When it gets beyond him, when his servant is just about to die, he immediately gathers up people to go to Jesus. And we should do the same. Prayerlessness is, it's a curse. It's a deception. I have a great wife. I know my wife sometimes feels invisible because she's always in the children's ministry. Yes, I am married. See the ring? (laughs) Wonderfully married for 25 years. And every once in a while, and she asks it in such a smart way, she'll say, when I'm wound up, wrapped around the axle of worry or work or whatever, she'll gently ask me, Bruce, have you you prayed much about that? And the answer, generally, if if I'm in that state, is no, I really haven't. I've said a phrase here or there on my way to fix it myself but I haven't really prayed. And Nancy Lee DeMoss, in a wonderful article that I shared in the earlier services, says that she was at a time convicted of her own prayerlessness. And she came to be convinced God showed her. She asked God to show her what prayerlessness was from His point of view. And she writes things like this, well, prayerlessness is sin against God. Prayerlessness is disobedience to the Word of God that tells us to pray without ceasing. When I'm prayerless, she says, I'm more vulnerable to temptation because Jesus taught us to pray so that we wouldn't enter into temptation. When I'm prayerless, she says, I define and I limit my relationship with God. The part that arrested me the most, Nancy says, is when I'm prayerless, I deal in the realm of the natural, what I can do, and I never get to the realm of the supernatural, which is what only Jesus can do. When I'm prayerless, she says, I show that I don't really have a burden and a compassion for the needs of other people, because if I truly believe that Jesus in heaven, who delights in the faith of simple people who finally get it and trust Him, if He were available, then I would ask Him above all, most of all, most often with the most sincerity for His help, rather than making people settle for what I can do. Prayerlessness is a curse. If you really believe that Jesus is the Lord, you'll be humble and you'll ask Jesus for His help. And then finally, verse 10, those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In other words, if we were trusted Jesus, if we believed Him in this way, He is who He is, if we would only believe it, we would see Jesus do things that only He can do. Self-disclosure time again. Now, boy, I hate this. But you need, to, you need to hear it. It's not about you, it's about me. See, I've been a pastor for, goodness, I was hired on this church staff my freshman year in Bible college. 
48 years old now. So that's nearly 30 years of vocational pastoral ministry. And here's what I've discovered. Here's what this story taught me. All too often, not all the time, but far too often, I get used to it. I love it. I enjoy it. I work hard at it. But I forget the thing that makes all the difference, which is trust in Jesus, which results in actually believing what He tells me about Himself and humbly asking for His help. In other words, even though I'm a pastor, and what a tragedy that is, all too often I settle for the natural. Maybe you can relate even if you're not a pastor. Maybe you can understand what I'm talking about. You come to a certain point of experience and knowledge, and you kind of think you know how this thing is going to go, and you think you need, you know what needs to be done. And that whole time there is a God in heaven who eternally exists, who made everything else, who must marvel at Christians like me saying, Bruce, what else do I have to do to help you understand who I am and what I can do? And I don't know about you, life's too short and the stakes are too high to settle for an ordinary natural if we really believed who Jesus was and trusted Him in this simple way, to say, Jesus, it's not that we deserve it. It's that You're powerful and You're good, so we're asking You simply, would You do this? We would see things, and perhaps even we would have Jesus in heaven amazed at our belief. Let me make it really practical for you. Is there anything in your life that needs the direct intervention of God and without it you'll be lost? What is it that you care about? What is it that you're working on? What is going on in your family, in your life? Maybe in your health or your employment? Maybe it's in your witness to other people that if you don't see Jesus intervene, you'll never see the miracle. See, because of the push of the anti-supernatural, I'm afraid that I get infected by it. And even as I tell you about a God who lives in eternity, who delights to do good and can do anything He pleases, He reserves always the right to say no, but He is in charge of absolutely everything. The push of the anti-supernatural gets into my heart and my mind, and I settle for what I can see, and I settle for the kind of work that I can figure out. We can live on a higher level. You can live the kind of life that can see Jesus do the things that only Jesus Himself can do. My inbox gets half full every week of people telling me things that Jesus needs to intervene in. Wayward children, broken families, marriages that are right on the edge of shattering chronic unemployment, deep loneliness, all kinds of human suffering that people have the goodness, and I appreciate it, and I guard your confidence to tell me your stories. Listen, I care, but your Father in heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, who can do all things and rightly deserves the title that He was called in this story, rightly deserves to be called Lord. He can do anything. It's Him that we need to trust. It's Him we need to talk to. So, could I invite you to join me in prayer right now? It would be a tragedy if we spoke of prayer and spoke of trusting Jesus 
and did everything except pray. Where is it, Christian? I'm talking to people who have already placed their faith in Jesus right now. Where is it, Christian, that Jesus needs to intervene? Can you identify with me that you worry and work at it more than you pray? If so, I'll be quiet now. Could I invite you to tell him all about it? He's listening. He's a real person. Mind, will, emotions to care and love you. Plans because he knows ultimately what is best. That's why he often says no. He knows what is best in every situation. Tell him about it. Ask him to give you the simple kind of trust that would amaze him by you believing him. Not your hard-heartedness who you don't. If you're not yet convinced, if you're not yet a Christian, could I invite you in His name to trust Him? To turn to Him and say, someone once said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, as best I know how, I trust You to be my Savior. I don't understand all of it, but I know I'm a sinner. I know I need saving. Please do that for me. That's one request to which he will never say no. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will by no means cast him out. You can have forgiveness. You can have a part in God's family. If only you will humble yourself and ask him. Lord, you, you, you are God and you have to be God to hear all of us at the same time across three services this weekend. We've asked you for Little small things that are important to us but in the scope of eternity are not that important. And others have asked you for things that are absolutely soul-crushing. Lives and families and kids depend on you intervening. Hear us asking you, Jesus, forgiveness. I can't speak for others. Forgive me for ever treating you in a way that shows that my familiarity has bred contempt rather than worship forgive me. Lord, we believe. We ask for your intervention. We ask you to save those who are here who need it. That you would welcome new people into your family this morning in this service as you have in others. For the Christians who are following you, Lord, and, and they've almost given up on hope. They've almost given up on answers. Give them again faith to humbly approach you and say with the soldier, Lord, I don't deserve this, but you can do anything. Please heal, please help, please bless. And God, I pray that you would do everything well, and I know that you will. Help us to trust you so that we as individuals, as families, and as a church family would not settle for the natural. That you would see you working powerfully in us to do the good things only God can do. In Jesus' name I pray.